Today's scripture reading is from Matthew 6, 19 through 24. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of your body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thanks, Emily Lane. Appreciate that. Once again, Todd Teller saturates the podium with baptisms in full support of that. Uh, Get into a little bit of trouble, though, because my notes bleed uh, with water and I have to be more impromptu sometimes. But uh, start the violins. Hey, my name is Scott. Uh, If we haven't met yet, uh, great to to be with you today. Uh, This is the 24th message in our Sermon on the Mount series. We're going to run this series until about midsummer, and then we're going to uh, head into Romans 8 and, and then a new series in the fall. Um, but today uh, I'm, I'm talking about uh, what, what Jesus identified as our treasures, our treasures. And so uh, we'll start this way. All of us have something at the center of our souls that we have decided uh, is going to function as our, uh, as our treasure, as our key to happiness, the thing about which we say, if I can get this or if I can keep this, uh, then all will be well with my soul. And uh, Jesus actually has a whole parable about this also in the 12th chapter of Luke's gospel. And it's the parable that's come known, uh, that, that is now known as the parable of the rich fool. And this is a man who has enjoyed prosperity, and he's accumulated a lot of, uh, of, of, uh, of stuff. And uh, so what he does is he announces that he's committing to a construction project on his own property. And what he's going to do is he's going to take his small barns and knock them down and replace them with bigger ones so that uh, there'll be a way to store all of the wealth and possessions that he's accumulated for himself. And really interesting choice of words uh, when Jesus continues here, because he says that the rich fool says to himself, I will say to my own soul. It's like he's preaching a sermon to himself. I will say to my own soul, soul, you have ample goods stored up for many years. Relax and be merry. And then that sermon that he preaches to himself backfires because it says the Lord comes in right after he finishes comforting his own soul. And the Lord says, tonight is the night that your, whole, your life is going to be required of you. It's like uh, that lyric in, in Morissette, Alanis Morissette's song, Ironic, the man who won the lottery and then he died the next day. It's like that. It's like rain on your wedding day, the free ride when you've already paid, the good advice that you just didn't take. Who would have thought it figures, right? Tolkien's Gollum, 
which, you know, you're either familiar with Gollum because you've seen the movies or because you're a nerd and you've read Lord of the Rings every year for the last 20 years of your life. But we all remember Gollum, and we, we remember Gollum for one thing, because Gollum was fixated on one thing, the ring of power that he had come to call his precious, the ring of power that he called his precious. The ring that promised him power, but it actually made him weaker. The ring that promised him glory, but it actually isolated him. The ring that promised him beauty, but, but that actually made him more and more hideous the more he clung to it. So, you know, whether you're talking about Jesus' parable of the rich fool or Morissette's ironic or, or Tolkien's Gollum, these are all cautionary tales about what Jesus identifies here in the Sermon on the Mount as the unhealthy eye, the unhealthy gaze, the unhealthy fixation, the unhealthy looking at some person, some place, something about whom or about which we say to our souls, if I can have it, if I can hold on to it, all will be well with my soul. So what I want to do here is um, basically pose and then try to answer three questions. What is our precious? What is it doing to us? And then finally, how can we be released from its power? So first of all, what is our precious? It's our self-salvation project. Whatever we, we've, we've latched our self-salvation project onto. It's our emotional non-negotiable. It's the thing that we don't want to think about going on in life without this person, place, or thing in our lives. You know, if you, if you listen to, to the way that Gollum talks about the ring, he, he, he talks about himself in, uh, in the plural, um, you know, sort of illustrating the duplicitous nature of the human heart as well and how we have all these divided loyalties. But, but Gollum says this about the ring or the precious. We wants it. We needs it. We must have the precious, so bright, so beautiful. Ah, precious. He hisses like a snake. And so, what Jesus is saying when he uses the word I, when he identifies the I, he's saying, look at your fixations. Look at whatever it is that you gaze upon. Because for Jesus, the I represents everything that we let into our souls, everything that we invite into and welcome into our souls to influence us, to shape us, and to drive us. It's the, thing that we, they're the things that we lean on first, they're the things that we lean on the most in order to fill our emotional love tank. And so, what Jesus does is He links this to wealth, our fixations, the things that we look at as our precious. He links it to wealth, and He says, no one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other, but you cannot serve God and money. You have to give your full allegiance to one or the other, and if you think you're dividing your allegiance, you're fooling yourself, because if you're dividing your allegiance, what you're really doing is you're giving your full allegiance to money, because God is not into mixed marriages. Uh, or, or not mixed marriages, but he's not into open marriages. 
He's certainly into mixed marriages. Moses and, you know, Song of Solomon and, and so many racially mixed marriages, but he's not into open marriages. He wants your eye, my eye, to be fixed on him. And so how do we identify what our precious is, what we're depending on? Because for each person, it's going to be something different. But the way that he ties our precious to money is, uh, I think, appropriate because money is what we use in order to get whatever that precious is and in order to keep it and, and safely store it away like the rich fool was. And so we have to ask ourselves, first and foremost, what is my decided upon trajectory for the wealth that is in my possession? And there are basically three trajectories for wealth. Number one, I'm going to send it over here so that I feel safe. You know, interesting where, you know, we store our money in this thing that we call a safe. We refer to our investments as our securities. We, we, we look at money in, 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 in the way that the rich fool does. It's making us safe. It's protecting us. I've got a long life ahead of me, and if I, if I can hit my number, then all is well, and I can preach to my soul, you are okay. You're, everything's going to be all right. Second trajectory is to be seen. We'll, we'll, we'll spend money on you know, clothing, on a certain house, in a certain neighborhood, uh, on, on whatever we need to have in order to, to you know, you know, buy ourselves into that situation so we can post that selfie or to buy ourselves into some sort of social circle or network or elite group so that we'll be seen. It's like one financial expert says, we're so prone, aren't we, to spend money that we don't have on things that we don't need to impress people that we don't like. And yet that's true of all of us on some level. And then the third trajectory is the trajectory of significance. I'm going to put my money over here because if I have this thing that, 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 that money can buy, I will matter. I will be important. I will be seen or regarded as important. We can even think this way about charitable giving. You know, the, the, the Pharisees built their identity on, on the way that they gave. They didn't give the 10% biblical minimum. They actually gave double that. They gave a tenth of, 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 of what, what their income was and a tenth of what their expenses were. And we can say to ourselves, look at me. I'm making a difference over here. Look at how I'm changing the world with, with you know, my deployment of resources, as if any of those dollars and cents were yours in the first place, as if any of them ever belonged to you in the first place. But our hearts will play tricks on us in order to build this significance with what Jesus calls mammon, which is money or anything money can buy. We can also look at our mind share. Just ask ourselves, what do I think about when I'm going to sleep at night and the house is quiet? What's the, what's the first place that my mind goes to in the morning when I wake up? What do I daydream about? It's like what Archbishop William Temple once said, your religion, your true religion, is what you do with your solitude. Or we could ask uh, you know, our, about our anxieties. We could look, look more closely at our anxieties. What for us is the worst case scenario? You know, for, for the rich fool, it would be to lose his money and possessions. But for us, it may be to lose something else. You know, sex, money, power, career, relationship, reputation, uh, you know, sense of safety, sense of comfort, um, 
you know, and so on and so forth. But, but behind the worst-case scenario question is, is a second question. If my worst-case scenario were to happen, if, like Job says, what I fear comes upon me, what is it that I fear losing? What is it that would be lost if the worst-case scenario happens? Because as we say a lot in here, or I say, and you're forced to listen, if you are united with Christ through faith, if you belong to Jesus, your long-term worst-case scenario is resurrection and everlasting life. And, and, and being united forever with others in Christ that, that, that you love dearly. That's your long-term worst-case scenario. That's as bad as it can get long-term. And yet, if, if, that's not, if, if resurrection and everlasting life isn't as bad as it could get in my mind and in my heart, then, then, then I'm putting something else there rather than giving promise and giving life, will steal promise and steal life. Moth and thieves will come in and, 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 and rip it off eventually. And then the, the other area that we can look at is more our moral compromise. You know, when Jesus says you cannot serve God and mammon, uh, you know, put something else in the place of money. You can't serve God and whatever it is you're looking at to fill your emotional love tank. You cannot serve God and your children. You cannot serve God and your spouse, even though serving God wholly and fully will actually make you a better spouse and a better parent than you would be otherwise. This is, you know, you, you give it away, you, you, this, Jesus has this really amazing way of giving it back to you and then some. But you can't plug your emotional umbilical cord into both. There's only one cord you've got. You can only plug it into one place. And so look at your moral compromise. Because this word, you know, you cannot serve, it's from the word doulos, which is the Greek word slave. You're going to be mastered by something or someone. You're made, you're built to be mastered. The human heart is made to worship, to give itself away, to serve some worship entity, which, which is God, of course, which I'll get to in a, in a moment. But you're either going to be mastered by God or by some person, someplace, or something that you treasure more than you treasure God. And you're going to give it or her or him the keys to drive your life. Either God is driving or something else is driving. And so what we can do, you know, just, you know, kind of to stay on Jesus' theme of God versus mammon, is to take what, what, what you could call the rich ruler test. And ask ourselves, in what ways am I being tight-fisted with whatever my treasure is, whether it's money or something else, but how am I being tight-fisted? And in what ways am I not willing, not ready, not even willing to enter, enter a conversation about releasing it to God or, 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 or anywhere else? Where am I not ready, emotionally or otherwise, to give full control and complete scrutiny to God over this? What closets in my life remain closed? And so the easiest way to answer this question, according to Jesus with a rich ruler, is to look at your charitable giving. I think one of the benefits that I have today about hitting this text on this particular day is, as you might see in the bulletin, Christ Prez is actually in a very strong position financially. There are so many of you who have been so generous this year. Uh, toward Christ and toward His mission through this church, which is awesome, but it also gives me the freedom to say to you, I feel no pressure right now about how you respond to anything I'm about to say. I feel no pressure about it. And, and I think you can believe that I feel no pressure 
you know, as the leader of Christ Pres Church, from a financial pre- uh, perspective, because so many of you have been so generous. And so, so let, let me just put it out there in the same way that Jesus put it out to the rich ruler. If you, if Jesus came up to you and said, will you give it all to me? Where would you turn your eye? The rich ruler turned his eye the other way. He did an about face from Jesus and turned his eye, eye toward his money and away from Christ because he recognized that it was one or the other because Jesus pressed him on that. Would you say, yes, I'll give it all to you, Lord, or would you turn the other direction and walk away sad like the rich ruler did? And I think it's fair to say that even though Jesus was talking to one person and not all people when he said, you know, let go of all your money, because the money in this guy's instance was what had him around the neck in the same way that something else might have you or me around the neck. But in the same way that he says to one person, you need to let go of all your money, he also says to all people, you have to let go of 10% or more of it. Just as a nice little symbol of your recognition that it all belongs to God in the first place. And and, and just as one little sign of your gratitude and thanksgiving for the fact that Jesus did not give 10% of himself, but 100% of himself for you. Because you were that precious, you were that much of a treasure to him. And if my answer is no to the 10% plus test, then you can be sure that if Jesus were to come to me, stare me in the face and and say, are you willing to give it all to me? My answer would be an unequivocal no. Don't fool yourself into thinking that if you're not going to be faithful to him in a small thing, that you would be in a big thing. But then I can comfort myself and I can say, well, I'm, I'm a lot like the Pharisees. Like, I would say, like, if I did the math, it's probably more like 16, 18, 20, 13 percent. So I'm a little bit ahead of the curve, right? Depends on what your curve is. Depends on what your measuring rod is. And it also depends on, the, on what you do with the other 87 percent or whatever it is. Because another test that, 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 or, or subtest under the rich ruler test is this. Where are you turning a blind eye in your use of money? Because another thing that Jesus says to the rich ruler is not only sell it all, he says give it all to the poor. Is my heart disposed toward the disadvantaged and to the least of these and, and, and to those who are in a weak position And so here's a diagnostic to ask myself. Am I willing to look at my own business and investing practices and ask the hard question, is there any way that my way of doing business or my way of investing might hurt specific neighborhoods, communities, individuals, or the environment, the world that God has created? Is there anything in there that might actually support either actively or passively the oppression of certain people groups, oppressive labor practices, child labor, or exploiting the disadvantaged, getting them for cheap labor because you can, because you know there's no other opportunity, and so you know that you can exploit the fact that they'll take whatever they can get, and so you pay them half of what they're worth. You protest that they're here, but then you pay them half of what they're worth. None of us is going to come out and say, hey, as I make money, guess what? I also get to perpetuate poverty and oppression. 
None of us is going to say that. But what we will do instead is we will turn our eye the other way and just not look at it. Avoid those parts of the Bible like Amos. It talks about how God is going to ensure that justice is going to roll down like rivers toward the poor, and you better be on His side when He does. Or like Jesus, who in His inaugural speech said, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. But we turn the blind eye because our eye is unhealthy. We're not willing to look at certain closets that we have closed off because we want it. We need it. We must have the precious. So bright, so beautiful. Ah, precious. So what's it doing to us? Truth be told, it's having the reverse effect upon us. It's making us poor instead of making us rich. You know, W.C. Fields, the comedian, said, sometimes a rich man is just a poor man with money. Jesus echoed this in verse 19. Do not store for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. You know, the rich ruler says to Jesus, I've got it all. I've got money, I've got power, I've got position, I've got recognition, I've even got religion, all these commands. I've kept them, Lord, since I was a child. But his question is still, Lord, what do I still lack? What am I still missing? I still haven't found what I'm looking for. There's another guy, also affluent, mover and shaker. His name is Nicodemus, John chapter 3. He's a portrait of the good life, pillar of the community, from elite social circles, a high financial net worth, lots of political power. He also comes to Jesus, it says, in the middle of the night, searching for answers. I mean, think about this. This is a guy who lives in the gated community, right? He wants FaceTime with a carpenter. He's going to have his assistant call the carpenter, give the carpenter the gate code, and the carpenter's going to show up exactly when the carpenter's supposed to. But instead, this guy goes out of his way in the middle of the night to find wherever Jesus is. Because in this carpenter, there are answers that Nicodemus has not yet found. It's like Ecclesiastes 5 says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. This too is vanity chasing after the wind. Just throw a few more contemporary names out there for our consideration. You'll, you'll recognize some of these, if not all of them. Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist Ernest Hemingway, Virginia Woolf, David Foster Wallace, Seattle rock star Kurt Cobain, Oscar-winning actor Robin Williams, poet Sylvia Plath, fashion designer, world-renowned fashion designer Alexander McQueen, Marilyn Monroe, all of them have two things in common. Number one, portrait of the good life, wealth, power, access, the good life. And then the second thing they all have in common is that their lives ended in suicide. It's like what Thomas Merton said, I got what I always wanted only to discover that it wasn't what I wanted. Pascal talks about this in Pensees. 
when he says that the human soul is an infinite abyss that can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object, in other words, by God Himself. This is the anatomy of the human soul. It's an infinite abyss. How big is your soul? How big is my soul? It is as big as the universe, which means that the only thing that can adequately fill it is the only thing or person that can also completely fill the universe, and that's God Himself. So we've got to ask ourselves, what is the sun in the center of whatever the solar, solar system is? And if we've taken a planet and tried to put it in the middle, there's our answer as to why the magnetic field has, you know, the magnetic fields have, have, have gone chaotic and everything's combusted inside of us. Because we've got an unhealthy eye and unhealthy fixations. And we're saying precious with a capital P to things that should never have anything but a lowercase to them. Now, trying to fill the human soul with any earthly treasure is like a man who is starving of hunger trying to satisfy his hunger with one single grain of rice, or a woman who is dying from thirst trying to satisfy her thirst by guzzling down salt water, which will only dehydrate her further and only increase her thirst. So how can we be released from the power of whatever our chosen treasures and cho chosen precious might be? It's to do the reverse of what the rich fool did in Luke 12. It's to preach a different sermon to our souls. There's still the, the the, the importance of preaching, but, but, but we have to preach the right and truthful and healthy and life-giving thing to our souls. Or as Jack Miller said, preach the gospel to ourselves. In 1984, Sally Field, do you remember? This? 1984 was a great year, right? Van Halen's Jump, uh, and you know, 1984 record, remember that? And little guitars, you know, you music people. Jesse will know that. Jesse can probably do little guitars for us at some point, but... Um, that was also the year that Sally Field won an Oscar for her role in Places of the Heart. Here was her speech to the Academy. I have wanted more than anything to have your respect. This time I feel it, and I can't deny the fact that you like me. You like me. Now, if you're under 40, you're asking the question, who is Sally Field? Because glory is fleeting. Earthbound treasures of all varieties are fleeting. I could easily see myself giving a very similar speech as Sally Field in a similar set of circumstances. So a couple of weeks ago, I got to hang out for an entire morning with uh, a guy named Ian Cron on his back porch in Franklin. He's, a, he's an author, and he's, he's recently co-written a book about the Enneagram, uh, which is a personality uh, sort of thing, um, nine different personalities. Uh, it's called The Road Back to You. And in this book, what, what, what Ian does is, is, is he, um, he helps people of faith in particular identify what your particular personality type, you know, what, what your particular earthbound treasure might be, and how to repent your way out of that and, and preach healthy sermons to your soul. So that's really the whole purpose for the book. 
And it's easy when you read through the book to know exactly who you are and exactly who the people in your lives are in terms of, you know, numbers one through nine. So my number, probably like Sally Fields was, at least in this moment, is number three. And the number three is the achiever. And when the achiever is in an unhealthy place, the greatest fear is to be seen as a failure. Not to be a failure, but to be seen as a failure by other people. You cannot bear losing face. And your greatest treasure when you are in an unhealthy place is the approval and the applause and the acclaim of other people. And, and the dead end mini sermon, the, the, the rich fool sermon that a three will preach to himself or herself is this, right now, they like you. Say to your soul, right now, they like me. So Andy Stanley, Andy Stanley is another pastor in the Atlanta area, very, very wisely said this, I can get up in front of thousands of people and say five wrong words and it would completely end this whole gig possibly never to return. And one day, truth be told, either you or I, one or the other, we're going to decide it's time for me to go. It's, it, it'll be time to decide that, that somebody else is going to do a lot better job than I am taking this community forward. Hopefully, we arrive at that conclusion at the same time. And hopefully, it's in 20 years instead of two. But still... The better sermon for a healthy three is, soul, you are anchored in a protected asset that will never spoil, never be forgotten, and never fade away. A treasure that won't fade because it can't fade. Because at your worst, soul, Jesus is just as fond of you as he is when you're at your best. Nothing can separate you from His love. He rejoices over you. Loudly and with singing because of the work that was accomplished by Him before you were even born or breathed your first breath or stood on your first stage. You know, a city like Nashville is like methamphetamine for a number three. Because it's a city of the stage. There's a healthy way to st stand up on a stage, and there's an unhealthy one. But how about the others? Where the core treasure for the number one is to be perfect. The healthy sermon to preach to one's soul is, soul, you already have the perfection of Christ and righteousness of Christ that covers you. So the pressure's off. Or for the number two, where, where the core treasure is to be needed, the healthy sermon is, soul, Jesus desires you. He is the bridegroom, you are the bride. Or if you're a number four, where, where the core treasure is to be special, the healthy sermon is, soul, you are fearfully and wonderfully made, just a little bit less than God, crowned with glory and honor and dignity made in His image. If you're a five and, and your core treasure is to be wise, to be the go-to person, the sermon to the soul is, soul, you have the Scriptures which enable you to be wiser even than your teachers. For the healthy six, or for the unhealthy six, where, where the core treasure is to be safe and to feel safe and unvulnerable, the healthy sermon is, soul, nothing and no one can snatch you from the Father's hand. For the seven who, who treasures happiness 
Eternal pleasures are there at the right hand of God, Psalm 16. Or for the eight who treasures being against and protesting and standing up for that which is right. The proper sermon is, soul, God is a God of justice who's going to right every wrong, and so it's not on your shoulders to make it happen. Number nine, it's the last one, where the core treasure is personal comfort. The trajectory of your life in Christ is a place where there will be no more death, mourning, crying, or pain, and where you will live in a mansion forever. You will walk on streets of gold. I mean, rich ruler, really? You want this little amount of money when, 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 when this could be your trajectory? It's like Lewis said, you know, we're, we're far too easily satisfied. You know, like, like the child who prefers a mud puddle over the ocean because he can't perceive the difference. And here, here's the ironic twist to, to close this out. When we let go of earthly treasures and cling to Jesus, we gain a more healthy and happy relationship with the things we used to cling to. doesn't necessarily mean they're exiled out of our lives. It, it, it may be that God just gives them back in a, in a healthier way. This is what happened with Nicodemus, who ended up purchasing a, a, a royalty, uh, you know, a, a, a tomb among royalty. To, to place the body of Jesus in because he saw a more lasting treasure ahead of him. And so as Isaiah said to the ancients, he also says to us even today, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Why look to a single grain of rice to satisfy the infinite hunger? Why look at a gulp of salt water to satisfy an infinite thirst, when you can come to the table of Jesus, the one who calls you his precious, and who, when he becomes yours, will become the one and only precious, who will save your life rather than losing your life, who will make you more healthy rather than making you more sick, who will exalt and elevate you rather than diminish you, who will enrich you rather than impoverish you. This is his food and his drink. If we eat it and drink it, we will hunger and thirst no more. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, the eternal treasures are at your right hand. Teach us to preach well to our own hearts that which is true, that which is healthy, that which is beautiful, so that our eyes can remain fixated on those things those things that are you, of you, those things that are imperishable, that won't fade because they can't fade because you are everlasting. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.